amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Okay, welcome back to episode four of Red Shirts and Runabouts here on the Heroes Podcast Network. Uh, We are your hosts. I am Jeremy Munkin. Uh, I'm Derek, and uh, so we'll be talking about episode four, but this is only our third podcast. This is our third. We're talking about episode four. Oops. Yes. Don't worry, I make the same mistake. And this is your this is your third host, Gregory Bosco, <laughs> or our fourth host, depending on how, uh, <laughs> depending on what uh, timeline we're talking about. Yes. Yes. Okay, so we're going to do a little thing here before we get into the actual episode four, uh, which is the very lengthy titled The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, so so very poetic, of uh, Star Trek Discovery. Um, A big big theme of tonight's or Sunday's episode was uh, the concept of um, a misunderstood monster, which we'll get into later. Uh, but I asked the the guys here what their favorite uh, misunderstood aliens from the various Star Treks were. So, uh, Derek, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, so my favorite might be a, a little on the nose, but uh, it's it's from uh, probably the the show I watched the most, which is, which is Voyager, and that is Species Eight Four Seven Two. Basically, my, my thought process there is, of course, that uh, we begin with them being this you know, horrible alien invasion force so bad that Janeway teams up with the Borg in the Delta Quadrant to eradicate this, uh, this species, or at least, you know, to help her get through Borg space. Uh, and then, you know, later we find that Species A472 has built a simulation of Starfleet headquarters and academy on Earth. Um, as even going so far as to have Boothby there as a as a person, um, uh, someone in character, of course, and that's a, you know taken as a huge threat. Um, they uh, especially if you continue on through um, some of the books and things like that, they they infiltrate quite a bit of Starfleet. Uh, several admirals on Earth, re- you know, uh, the real Earth end up being Species 8472, uh, a huge chunk of the post-Voyager novels that Kirsten Beyer, uh, who of course writes on Star Trek Discovery now, is uh, mainly responsible for writing uh, after the first three books. It's all hers. Uh, the whole mission back to the Delta Quadrant is based on this. So they, they're bad guys. And uh, at the end of the day, it turns out that, you know, they're, they're really not so bad. They might have some, some quirks about them that are not great, but... You know, the, the, the Borg really invaded their space, and they don't trust us because we teamed up with the Borg. So it's kind of an example of there are enemies because we thought they were our enemies and don't necessarily need to be. Right. The uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend, and the friend of my enemy is my enemy. Exactly. Right. So that that's kind of, uh, I think they're the number one most misunderstood 
uh, because given you know a different context, if Picard had met them, I think things may have gone very differently. How do you think he would have handled that? Well, I don't think obviously he would have ever teamed up with the Borg. Um, as much as I, I love Janeway, that was always a decision I wasn't super thrilled with uh, from a command decision. You know, Picard had has PTSD from his assimilation in the best of both worlds, which you know was shown, of course, in in First Contact. Um, I think he he of course would have wanted to make a diplomatic contact, right? First Contact as the flagship of the Federation. Uh, to bridge a peace. Yeah. Jane, Janeway definitely had <clears throat> a more uh, kind of attack and, and you know, let's figure it out later kind of approach to a lot of things. And she had that kind of a... I, don't, I hate to use the word obsession because it sounds horrible, but she was at a dedication to get her crew home safe and sound. And it's, it's that situation. I don't know. I, I agree with you, Derek, because I think Picard would have... Uh, I think he would have taken... That would have been one of those two-parter Next Generation episodes as well. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think obsession is the right word in this case. She was willing to sacrifice a great many things to get the crew home. Uh, not everything, of course, which I'll actually bring back around when we discuss episode four of Discovery here later. Um, but, you know, her willingness to get get her crew through Borg safe... Uh, through Borg space safely, excuse me, uh, blinded her to the possibility that Species 8472 was not the real bad guy here, and they were not as bad as the Borg. Uh, they were defending themselves. That's a great point. Which, I guess, again, plays plays into uh, the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. <laughs> we should probably make an acronym out of that. <laughs> <laughs> nope, we got to say the full title each time. So yeah, that's my my pick. What's your what's your alien? Well, you know, I was I was debating this for basically a, a day and a half since you first mentioned the idea, and I came up with a list because I was worried I was going to pick one that one of the two of you were going to pick as well. Um, well, since you have a full list and I only have one, maybe I should do mine. <laughs> so it's not on your list. Yeah, go go ahead. You go first, Jeremy, because I want to make sure I don't duplicate okay. on accident. Okay, I went with what I felt like might have been a a fairly basic choice that somebody else would have stumbled upon too so it's probably on your list uh i went with uh dathan from the next generation episode darmok oh that's a good one yeah because uh it it definitely reminded me a lot of of the alien from this episode with the very long name uh in that it was it was seen as a threat it was misunderstood they were struggling to communicate and then kind of through trial and error and problem solving they were able to figure out that he he wasn't well he wasn't totally without malice he definitely uh put them in a dangerous situation for kind of a weird diplomatic reason but uh he wasn't a, a direct threat in that he wasn't there to just stab picard and shout metaphors at him. He was literally a misunderstood alien. Right. I mean, not, yeah. <laughs> not just figuratively, but... And, uh, Dathan always holds a special place in my heart, because this shows my true fandom and nerddom, is my first World of Warcraft character was named Darmok. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. And my buddy Brent's yeah, character I've... was Jalad. It was Darmok and Jalad. We played for five years together. Did you start a guild called Tanagra? No, our, our guild wasn't that clever. We were Raiders of the Lost Orc. So, you know. Oh, that's pretty good. Uh, man, that, that's actually a really great story. I wish that I had had uh, a buddy to do that with. Um, 
No, it's a really amazing episode, right? Uh, yeah, I've always considered, like, uh, a lot of people for Doctor Who, they'll say, like, watch watch Tenet's episode Blink as, like, your intro into what that show can be. I always say watch watch Dharma. That's, like, my, my this is this is the amazing thing that TNG was able to accomplish if I'm trying to turn people on to TNG, mm-hmm. not just in general. No, it's it's a good point, and it, I think that also ties back into Discovery too. Because if I'm remembering correctly, the uh, the writer um, of of the teleplay is a writer on Discovery now. If I'm remembering of that specific correctly. episode, yeah, of Darmok. Yep. Oh, nice. So nice little feature there. I I love that episode so much. I, I love that again, and it shows Picard's diplomacy, right? That he is always willing to negotiate with someone who, you know, is, um, still at the table, right? It's, it's always an open discussion and he's not going to give up on somebody simply because he doesn't understand them. Yeah. Also it's, it's a good, it's like a puzzle. Uh, like the whole episode is them trying to solve a puzzle. I actually used, uh, Darmok is as part of a, a game that I worked on when I used to be a game developer. Uh, it was a game about, um, learning phonics and trying to suss out the meanings of an alien language. Uh, so I used like a clip from the episode as my pitch to my bosses and we ended up making that game. It was pretty, it was pretty worked out pretty well. That's awesome. Very cool. Okay, Greg, what's your list? Well, my list, I can just use the one that was not picked, but my, my top misunderstood alien was only in two episodes and it was the crystalline entity. Oh, um, uh, crystalline entity. And, I love it because, the, you know, when they first have the whole data lore component, you have no idea what this thing is. It just sounds like a horrible murder bot, basically. And it, when they bring it back and it's attacking the Federation colony and, you know, Dr. The, Dr. Miranda, I think it's Miranda Carr, uh, is on the Enterprise and she's the, the, the Federation's crystalline entity expert. And they, you know, they lure it to the planet so using that graviton emitter and such and they're trying to communicate and it's Picard that realizes, like, wait a second, something, something more is going on with this this creature, whatever this is. And she's like, "What are you talking about? It devours whole worlds, and you know it's evil. It's a, it's a menace." And Picard is still Picard. He's that philosopher who's talking to her, talking to his crew. He's like, you know that that thing has as much right to live as we do. And you know you you kind of feel bad for an inanimate object because when she, they're communicating with those little graviton pulses and. She just turns it onto a graviton stream and it it kills it. And you know the whole better, the whole Enterprise crew is like, we gosh, we understand what you did. We just don't agree with why you did it. And it's probably my most misunderstood alien because you're never sure. Is it a threat? Is it a menace? What is it? Um, of course, my most triggered snowflake. Yeah, it's exactly it's a it's a very <laughs> upset snowflake. Um, now, my most misunderstood alien in all of Star Trek is, and I won't do a whole spiel on it, but. It, Probably one of the, my favorite villains is Gold Ducat from Deep Space uh, Nine, just because I thought he was amazing. I don't know. Is he misunderstood? I feel like uh, Cisco had him pegged from day one. He's just like, <laughs> you're a piece of shit and you're lying to everyone. And it's like, no, I'm not. And then it's like, oh, no, he was a piece of shit and he lied to everyone about everything. <laughs> that, and that's that's the thing I like about him is because then there's episodes where you like, feel for the guy. He's got emotion. Yeah. He's got his daughter. The... Uh, you know, when the Federation retakes Deep Space Nine and his daughter's killed and they find him and even Cisco's like, I don't know, take him to Dr. Bashir. Maybe the doctor can help him. 
and it's there's emotion in the character and something that I always kind of talked about is yeah he betrayed the Alpha Quadrant to the Dominion but all the episodes when after the Klingons invade and the Cardassians are asking for help I always ask myself what if the Federation would have helped them more would they still have gone to the Dominion or did he do what he thought was best for his pe- his people obviously it wasn't <laughs> but I mean yeah. we, we know that in hindsight but I always I always thought Gal Dukat was one of the greatest villain slash protagonist slash alien characters in Star Trek. So there you go. I, I cheated. I, t- I chose two. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, Gold Dukat, I always thought, was incredibly selfish and a little crazy. Um, Especially because, you know, Yeah, exactly. You know, with the, the Pa Wraith and all of that. And, I mean, he kills Judzia. And there just doesn't... I mean, yes, he cares about his daughter, which... Um, I mean, that's his family. And so I've always kind of put that to the side of, well, of course he cared about, uh, his family, but he never really shows compassion for anybody else outside of that. Um, He's a sociopath. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I think that's like the real key for me is that he, he is, he's a sociopath. And if I was going to say, you know, maybe a misunderstood character in that realm, especially somebody who constantly tried to, uh, to do whatever he could, you know, to better his people, uh, would be Garrick. Yeah, that's, that was actually uh, on my my short list when we were thinking about these. Is, is misunderstood alien Garrick is 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 up there. I love Garrick. He's such a great character. Because you know, no matter how much his own people shunned him, how much the Federation you know may or may not have trusted him, he still tried to do the right thing as much as possible. On oh, the dynamics of the relationship with him and his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The Kling- the Klingons of Deep Space Nine, or the Klingons, the Cardassians, excuse me, I think they really started to come out more as a race in Deep Space Nine than uh, Next Generation. And I need to go... Oh, yeah. I need to go back to the lore. I think that's true of the Klingons, too. It is definitely true of the Klingons, but I, I, I want to go back to the lore. I want to say the Cardassians were almost introduced in Next Generation to give them a villain outside of the Romulans and the Klingons. Uh, well, yeah. the Klingons, not really a villain, but another protagonist species, because I know they tried it with the Ferengi, which didn't really work in Next Generation, but it worked great in Deep Space Nine. Go figure. Mm-hmm. Now, the Klingons in, in TNG were still always a little bit antagonistic. You never really knew when to trust them. Even Worf, every time a Klingon ship showed up, he was like, you know, let's let's start firing. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Well, that's always a solution. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, the, the, um, the Klingons still have the greatest 30-second scene in for, for me, Star Trek history with uh, the one episode when the, uh, the Romulan and Admiral's trying to defect the defector. And it's that the last part of the episode, I don't even know if you guys remember, but the Romulans, uh, the Enterprise charges across the neutral zone and they're surrounded by two warbirds and, you know, Picard's mm-hmm. talking about going down fighting and then he says, now, Mr. Warp, and three Klingon, you know, battle cruisers or bird of prey. I mean, the models were interchangeable, call what you want, but three Klingon ships, you know, decloak. De- de- and you know, the whole time the Klingons are just screaming, "Just do it, do it, do it!" So somebody fire, because we want to kill. <laughs> we want to kill some Romulans. It's. I like that the fact that the Enterprise messaged the Klingon homeworld for help, and the Klingons came to help. That was always pretty cool to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's a, a really great example of who they are. They're they're always ready to fight, and they really want to fight the Romulans. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Though I think I think one of my favorite moments is in, uh, in Generations, the movie, 
uh, with the sisters after they send Jordy back over to the Enterprise, and he just won't go to engineering. <laughs> they make the comment about how he found the only chief engineer in Starfleet who doesn't ever go to engineering. <laughs> goes to engineering. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. <laughs> that scene when they're just watching Jordy's life through Jordy's eyes—it's the funniest. It's one of the funniest moments in Next Generation, where it's just like, "What is he doing?" <laughs> It's like they're watching so great. a boring reality TV show. Basically, yeah. I loved it. That was a, a great, just kind of, you know, humorous moment. And, you know, they always kind of had that dark humor in the original series and Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Maybe we'll start seeing that a little bit in Discovery, too. I hope so. I really do. I mean, I feel like we've already seen it a little bit. Like, um, Tilly's talking about, like, you can't be that, Michael. That's That's a little bit of a dark... Because it's like you can't be the the disgraced Starfleet person. Uh, oh, it is you. No, oh, God. yeah, that part. But I, I meant the uh, the Klingon dark humor because they've always had it as, oh, yeah. as a species where, you know, I I didn't mean the Enterprise should be hauling garbage. I meant it should be hauled away <laughs> as garbage. It's just <laughs> I like those little Klingon yeah. the little Klingon quips they would just throw in there. You know, look. look. I mean, we we can we can use this as a jumping point to get into the uh, the episode itself because. Good lord, the Klingons are humorless and dull in in Discovery. There's like no no joy to them at all. They are like that, very serious. Yeah, they, it does make me feel maybe that they did write the original Shakespearean stuff. It was Klingon, just dry and, and you know. Because you're right, it reminds me of you know when Q lost his powers and he's screaming at the Enterprise, "What can I do to prove it to you?" And Worf's in the background. He just says, "You could die." <laughs> it's like that's the yeah. those are the Klingons, and you're right. The Klingons, I agree with Jeremy, both of you and Derek. And Klingons right now are kind of just so I don't know, like relaxed in a dark kind of sense. It's just so calm. There doesn't seem to be much to them outside of them simply being uh, mad at the Federation. Which I mean, that's a fine motivation for war, but. I'm going to need a little bit more out of them, and I'm hoping we get it, because I know there's supposed to be some standalone Klingon episodes, so maybe we just have to wait for that. Uh, That'll be amazing. Wish I didn't know that. <laughs> that will not be amazing. I mean, that's that's one of the... So, getting getting into the episode, the butcher's knife hates lamb chops. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was it was an A story and a B story. A story focusing on on Michael and her interactions with the giant uh, tardigrade, the water bear, uh, and then um, a completely unrelated Klingon story. Which, as far mm-hmm. as TV writing goes, if you have an A story and a B story, either the B story parallels the A story for for parallel storytelling, or they tie together at the end. And the whole time, the the Enterprise side of the story leads up to this Klingon attack on Corvin 3, and I thought that was going to somehow tie together with the Klingon B-plot, but it never did. It was just this completely separate thing that we just kept cutting away to. It was really frustrating. Yeah, two separate par- but parallel stories that somehow three, four, five episodes from now may connect, but in this episode, you're right, they didn't have any... They were completely independent of each other. Yeah. I mean, I like, feel like that's very Game of Thrones. Yeah. You know, where you just have these other threads that, yeah, they exist in the same universe and these characters, some of them know each other from previous events, uh, but we don't know how or when they're going to tie back together, which is very not 
historically Star Trek because, you know, the B plot was, you know, Jordy and Data on the holodeck or, uh, you know, Naomi Wildman playing Kata Scott or something like that. Uh, you know, this is very, very different. Well, and I would so, I would applaud them if that's the storytelling that they were going to do, but why would you start that structure of storytelling on episode four? Well, I'm not sure that they, they, they did. I mean, we didn't really see the Klingons... The, these Klingons uh, in the last episode, in episode three. Um, so we saw them, the, the stories began together in the two-part premiere. We skipped it in episode three, and now we start to, to see that diversion, uh, divergence. Well, in that, I yeah. guess maybe maybe that was because in the, in the previous episode, and I guess that now would be your spoiler warning uh, at this point, because uh, I'll, I'll start getting into why I think this is they did it this way. Uh, so if you have not watched episode four of Discovery yet, uh, you know, you have been warned. Um, but I think it's because in episode three, they didn't really want us to know what happened with Giorgio yet and the state of the Shinzao. Yeah. And we find out both of those things pretty bluntly yeah. in this episode. Um, and I think that's probably why they skipped that part of the story last week. Well, and I'm wondering, and this is the little cynical part of me that's, you know, they, I don't know if they ever knew they might get this because Discovery so far is pretty popular. It's doing a lot better than I think people thought. It's being a little bit more well received than people thought. It's almost yeah. They're talking about season two already. Yeah, and I'm wondering if they didn't know they ever had a chance for season two. So that's one reason they started introducing the other storylines so fast is because they're like, we yeah. only have 15 episodes to play with, and now they're looking at the all access for CBS and people are like people are actually buying it and people are watching and there's podcasts now and there's fans and. It, it, it's been great, and you know, I still have to say my fa- actually my favorite part of the episode again. We're back in the spoiler territory was the female Klingon. I just because mm. she threw me for a lot of loops, and I was I, I enjoyed it. It was cool seeing that on screen and seeing her interaction with Takuvma, who I I still butcher the name, and I'm I will continue to butcher that. Mm-hmm. What is- uh, I think I, I think her name is Lorel. Yeah. It's Lorel and Vok. They're both followers of Takumba. Oh yeah, not Takumba's Tukum- the-, the dead one. Yeah, I'm... yeah, Vok. <laughs> uh, I genuinely didn't know until about halfway through the Klingon plot that she was female. I thought that they were doing like a, a gay Klingon story because I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because uh, they showed when they did the the holographic gathering of the Klingon houses, there was one female house leader that looked kind of like the sisters. That she was much more like like classically Klingon female with with much more pronounced features. But uh, yeah, uh, Lorel is is a little bit more subdued in her femininity, I guess. And look, you kind of just mentioned it. Let's. I want to take two seconds or two minutes. I apologize. To talk about the separate houses that we saw in that hologram and how they're still kind of disjointed. It's not an entirely united Klingon Empire right now. And can we talk about the fact of how well they're still doing in this war with basically 24 different factions? They're all fighting the Federation and they're all, they all seem to be doing pretty good without a unified command element. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point because you know, clearly they don't have their cloaking technology yet because that's what they want Takovma's ship for. Um, so at this stage, I guess you've got the, the D5 doesn't have cloaking technology, but the Constitution class is already out. Um, 
seems a little confusing to me from a timeline perspective, but I would imagine that a Constitution class could take out D5 battle cruisers that have no cloaking technology pretty easily. I would agree with you on that. Yeah. I'm also really shocked. Uh, they they kind of talk about how um, the Shinzon has been sitting there for six months, and mm-hmm. there's there's no other Klingon ships. The Klingon ship that's there is is pretty much out of commission. How has the Federation not gone to recover the ship or the the bodies of the crewmen? Like it's not a dangerous spot. It's a really good point. I've, I had the exact same thought because it looked like the Shinzao would have been fairly salvageable um, from a component yeah. perspective, and they couldn't have been the only ship like that. Uh, so that was really surprising. But at the same time, it was all. It, I thought it was equally surprising that the Klingons left behind their right. their most technologically advanced ship that still had living people aboard. Yeah, and they sur- and all of this took place at the location of a Starfleet satellite. Like that was where the battleground on, was on the border, mm-hmm. where there a huge battle was fought and. Can we talk? Right. Can we talk about for a minute how the uh, the Klingons ate the Shenzhou crew? I mean, uh, <laughs> I, well, they they ate Georgiou. They ate Georgiou at yeah, least. Yeah, because she uh, was. Well, I think they ate Georgiou because she was on their ship. Okay. I don't think they actually went to scavenge the Shenzhou because it was depressurized. Yeah, I felt like that was a really gruesome way to just confirm that yes, she's dead. Because at the same time, the studio had announced. Uh, that we this is not the last of Giorgio that we've seen, and now I guess we can confirm that that means it's going to be either flashbacks or an alternate timeline. Or sentient Klingon defecation. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> we we're all unsure uh, how to go with that topic. <laughs> but, I mean, there, there's some possibility, of course, for flashbacks. Uh, we, of course, saw her hologram in The Last Will and Testament in this episode. But she could end up being alive in the Mirror Universe episode that they have planned. Yeah, I mean, the Mirror Universe is definitely happening, and she's... Let's let's face it, she's going to be alive, and those Mirror Universe uniforms are always awesome-looking anyways. <laughs> and she's going to be a captain, and the Federation's going to have conquered the Klingon Empire, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Well, because by that time, keep in mind that, you know, in this in the Mirror Universe, thanks to Enterprise, we know that Hoshi is the Empress... Uh, about you know a hundred years before ninety years before these events, um, so I'd be curious to kind of see what that empire looks like now. Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting to compare that the the pieces of the puzzle, the mirror universe, and see where kind of that is back back at this point, point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So okay, so what did you guys think about kind of? the whole premise of this spore drive with the tardigrade. I, I'm going to say, cause I'm a huge fan of water bears in general that <laughs> they threw me, it threw me off for a second. Cause when they were talking about it, I co- almost couldn't decipher if it actually was just like a super gigantic version of a tardigrade or not, or just similar to it. Cause they kind of called it both things. They called it a water bear, a tardigrade, all that kind of jazz. But I like, I, I do enjoy how they're incorporating the science aspect, like the real life science aspect of this stuff. The spore drive that we talked about a couple episodes ago, how it's somewhat based on the myth, not the myth, but the scientific theory of that kind of drive. But now it's throwing in that traditional Star Trek mantra of, we have got this awesome new engine that helps us, might help us win the war. Oh, but using it causes this kind of pain and suffering to another creature. And I think... 
I can't remember one of you just said it a few minutes ago, but uh, Burnham has already noticed that. That whatever they do with this drive harms this creature. And she's she's already conflicted, so you know next episode she's going to bring it up to somebody. Well, I, I think that's exactly why you never see this drive in the shows that take place in the future. Because I think at some point, maybe it's after the war, but at some point the, Fe- the Federation and Starfleet are going to be aware of what pain this drive causes this creature, uh, Ripper, and they're going to outlaw the technology. Yeah, especially since it has to use nipple clamps on Ripper to actually get the navigation working. That was a little, it was like, oh, hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this like latched, latched right on there and, and made the, the chest of the thing pink and just like was waving its arms around. It's like, well, this is weird. <laughs> it's very specific pain for that well, thing. It, it, go, it actually goes hand-in-hand hand with the Equinox two-parter in Voyager, where the Equinox crew is basically capturing these multidimensional aliens to power their special warp drive to get them home, and Janeway's having none of it. And in this case, you've got Lorca is essentially the Equinox captain, and um, you know Michael Burnham is Janeway. There's um, a Next Generation plot like that, too, where the Romulans are using some kind of egg of an alien creature to power their their trilithium drive. That's the one where it, like, freezes time. Man, I don't even remember that one. I thought they used a uh, a singularity. I thought the singularity... It, it was a singularity, but the singularity was also being used as, like, an incubator for those aliens' eggs or something? That, and that's what I thought. It was the singularity was where the aliens, like, gave their birth or gave life to or, or yeah, they pro- something. Yeah, they, they procreated. Yeah, because uh, right. that was the episode when the time stopped and the Enterprise thought the Romulans were attacking. Or, no, excuse me, uh, Picard and their crew thought the Enterprise was being attacked by Romulans because there's a scene at sickbay where the Romulans just point blank blasting Dr. Crusher in the gut with the... With a Romulan, right, Jordy and Ensign Rowe. Yeah, with a Romulan disruptor, and I'm just like, yeah. Uh-huh. I remember him saying, "He's like, oh, I was shooting at the alien that was there." I'm like, wait a second, she's like two feet in front of you. I'm like, who? Right. <laughs> you're not, you're not selling this to anybody. Um. <laughs> so yeah, so I guess this isn't the first time that we've we've kind of seen something like this on Star Trek, but I think it is a good. Um, in-universe explanation for why we don't ever see the technology in the future shows. Well, it makes it makes yeah. perfect sense because if it does turn out that let's say somehow I you know I'm, it's all hypothetical because we don't know what the future episodes bring. Let's say they find some way to communicate with this creature, and the creature is like it communicates in its own way. It's like yeah, I I don't like what you're doing, but I'm going to help you win the war because whatever. Um, but oh by the way, every time you do this, it hurts and it hurts a lot and. The spores you're using aren't actually spores; they're they're my children or something along those lines. That yeah, that was that was an interesting thing I was going to ask you guys because um, they talked about the fact that um, I'm so bad with the names here the the science officer, um, some with an S, Stamens, Stamens, Stamens. Um, yeah, Stamens uh, says to his counterpart on the the ship that crashed, um, he didn't grow his spores. The way that they do with their forest. So how did how did the other guy on the Groff get their spores? Oh, that's a good point. Did they take it from the creature? Mm. If the creature somehow creates yes. them, I don't know. It's where'd they get them? Yeah, that was that was the big thing that just seemed like such a unsafe thing because no matter what the Groff was doing with the with Ripper, it seemed like 
Ripper breaking out of that thing is what stranded the Groff. The gl- so the Glen for the Glen. Oh. Sorry, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping I didn't miss an episode somehow. I was like, what? Sorry, <laughs> no, the, the Glen, <laughs> the other ship. Yeah, because it seemed it seemed like oh, let's just do what the Glen did, and but what the Glen did got them blown up and stranded in space. So it's like, why that seems unsafe. Oh, I totally agree with you. When they were going to do that, my first thought was, are they not going to have any conversation about how they're going to avoid what happened to the Glen, like at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, and they, they I, I, I was laughing when they did it because they kind of did one of the famous, Star Trek's been doing it for 50 years now, the hand wave, because they, the one admiral, when she's talking to Lorca, and she's like, you can do it, right? And he's like, well, we've made dozens of small jumps. So it's like they've been experimenting, and you, they throw that in there. The example I used on our first episode of... Uh, Oh, the the moon's magnetic field blocked their sensors. They couldn't find us. So they always throw that one line in there that kind of explains mm-hmm. everything away, and they they kind of did it a little bit with this episode, which I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay with. Yeah. But to your point earlier, they're using more real science and less Trekno babble. That's true. Yeah, uh, which I appreciate. You know, they even threw Elon Musk in there as a <laughs> uh, technological great, which I thought was a was cool to modernize. Those types of examples. Uh, uh, except he's not. He's a marketer. He's not a scientist. He's like Edison. He's just like steals his ideas and s- figures out how to sell them. Well, that's. I think that's an argument for a different <laughs> yeah. podcast. But uh, how did you guys feel about the way the ship moves in order to oh, use the, the, the counter drive? rings? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It, it kind of gives the explanation of why there is that gap between the uh, two parts of the saucer section. So it, it, I knew it was going to spin somehow. And it kind of goes back to the discussion a couple episodes ago is they spin, obviously, to help with the drive. Was the, Were the Discovery and the Glen built purely to continue experimenting with the spore drive? Yes. So, they did, yeah. did kind of have a throwaway line for that in the last episode, um, that these two ships were specifically designed for this experiment. And, so. and that's kind of cool to me because, you know, the Discovery, when it jumped in, I don't know how else to spored in mushroomed in jumped in i i don't know it doesn't matter jumped in we'll just use that shroomed 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 in um you know (laughs) when they jumped into the to the mining colony like corvana 4 or cortana 4 um i think it was corvin 3 maybe that's what it was which i thought was cool because they show a federation mining colony and they kept talking about look we need dilithium it powers our ships we can't afford to lose this so it's from the strategic sense i get the whole battle but the Discovery, when it jumped in, it destroyed like a couple of Klingon birds of prey pretty quickly. Um, so I'm like, this ship's not just a science vessel. It's also a pretty decent warship, which I like. It's kind of like the the Enterprise D. It's, uh, it's a science vessel for exploration, but when it needs to fight, it can fight. Well, and Lorca specifically says this is no longer a science vessel. This is oh. a ship of war. Yep. Like, that's, that's a big turning point. Yeah, there, there was a few things about that jump. Uh, kind of the whole premise of Corvin 3 that, that bothered me. It's a very Trek thing where it's like every, every warp-capable ship uses dilithium, whether you're uh, Federation or Klingon. And 40% of the Federation's dilithium is from this one planet. Look, it's it's it's, yeah. it's like space communists. It all comes from one location. <laughs> it's just, it just seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, and it, the other question is... They, they they found this perfect dilithium moon, or at, yeah, it was a moon, or planetoid, excuse me, right, and it's just that close to the Klingon border. You'd think they would have, like, realistically, you'd think they would have had a task force there that would have been fighting, 
And that almost would have made it, made it very a little bit more of an... I enjoyed the episode, but it would have been a really cool episode if there's like two or three ships fighting for their lives at the same time. And mm-hmm. the Discovery jumps in and saves them in the mining colony. I know it's, you know, the whole joke, if wishes were horses, we always want more. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they, they talk about how, you know, it was ambushed and the defenses were destroyed. But why wouldn't you have a starship or two protecting... Half of your reserves. It's, it's the start or ground based phasers. Something. It's the it's the Star Trek Generations issue I have that movie when uh, you know the ribbon is coming towards Earth and like we're the only ship in range. I'm like, what? You're 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 like in the solar system. There's right. <laughs> there's no other starships in the solar system. So yeah, I'm like, you could have at least put two or three ships there, and they could have just said, hey, you know the the USS Edwards and the USS McCormick were destroyed, and we need the Discovery to go save the colony. Mm-hmm. Also, fun fact, Corvin 2 is name-checked in the Next Generation episode, New Ground. Uh, apparently, they there's like some classroom that Alexander is in, and they're introducing small animals. And one of the small animals is native to Corvin 2. Oh, well, there you that's go. That's a reconnection. Yeah. That's cute. Yeah. Very nice. Um, so, let's see. We have, of course, uh, Giorgio's Last Will and Testament. Um how did you guys feel about that? Uh, it seemed like kind of a very sentimental moment, but we don't really have any reason to have any kind of emotional weight to that telescope. It was never brought up before. It doesn't have any real utility in this world. It's just kind of a, a thing, a dead character passed down to someone who betrayed them. But I don't know. My, my whole thing with... With the captain and and Michael, like, she raised her, but she didn't raise her. She betrayed her, but she kind of forgave the betrayal in their last moments. It's all kind of, I don't know, everything is a wash for me emotionally with those two. So, I mean, they do use the telescope in the first episode. To find the uh, torch, right? They do? Mm Mm-hmm. Because the sensors are not working where the torch bearer's ship is. And so they, because uh, you know the magnetic quantum <laughs> interruption, the throwaway, the throwaway line. Yeah, uh, they, uh, yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they have to reverse the polarity. Uh, anyway, so they, yeah, they go into Giorgio's ready room, and they, oh, the it's there? telescope is there. Yeah, and they use the telescope to look at the torchbearer ship. Wait, so they they go to the, all the trouble to get her personal effects and her last will and testament out of her ready room and apparently rescue the crew and everything, but they leave the ship there and their dilithium processing unit? Yep. That seems like sloppy work. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's two different crews, right? You got the uh, the recovery crew, which are probably mostly you know non-military personnel, and then you have uh, a battle crew that would have to you know secure the ship, I guess. It was, it was the cadet. And so the recovery crew is just HR. Yeah, it was the cadets on their on their <laughs> on their third, fourth year training mission. That was all. Right, right. right. I mean, red squadron. Yeah, red squadron. Oh, that's a different topic. <laughs> um, perfect cadets that can infiltrate anything. I'm like, wait a second. Anyways, um, you know, I'll admit this: the, the last will and testament actually just. It, I don't know. I might get some hate for this. It made me miss Captain Giorgio even more, and I I wish. I love Lorca, and I love the act, Jason Isaacs, the actor. I would watch a TV show dedicated to Michelle Yao as Captain Giorgio all the time. I mean, I thought yeah. it just reminds me of the the human aspect of her. They didn't make her change her accent. Um, 
she felt like a captain. The only part I didn't like was the whole, you know, you were my kind of like my daughter. I was like, well, you kind of. I mean, maybe more of a sister. Um, but I don't know. So much I, of the, the sentimentality of, of those characters and those connections feels so forced. Like, they haven't earned it the way that they did in, in shows like Next Generation and Voyager, where there are so many, like... So, and this goes back to my thing with, with not liking the Klingon aspect being the B story. This would have been a perfect Star Trek-ass Star Trek episode if they had the the Star Trek science thing be the, be the A-plot with the water bear and the misunderstanding and using it to fix the conflict. And then the B story should have been like following Tilly on some adventure with Saru through, you know, <laughs> Poker Night or something like that, where it's just like we get to know these characters more than just seeing them do their jobs in heated situations. Like, I feel like we're four episodes in and we haven't, like, we saw people have a meal one time and, like, barely talk. But everything else has just been action, 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 action. And now the first officer is dead and we had no idea who she even was. I definitely want to talk about that, uh, but I do want to say that I really like Giorgio. Uh, I think she encompasses what I want from a Starfleet captain, uh, so I'm, I'm totally with Greg on this one. Uh, but at the same time, as it comes to the Discovery crew, uh, because I think you know, we're supposed to you know, assume certain things about the existing relationships because we are not jumping in literally at the beginning. Um, you know, this is not an origin story of Giorgio and Michael Burnham. Uh, but anyway, I, I think that the Discovery crew has been really glossed over. I mean, we know a little bit about Saru, but that's also because he was in the, the two-part premiere. We know next to nothing about uh, Isaacs at this point as uh, from a personal level. Yeah. Uh, Command- Commander Landry, you know, already, you know, killed off. Um, we know a little bit about Tilly from a personal level, and then that's it. We don't know any of the rest of the crew. We just got introduced to the Doctor, who has a couple of lines. We uh, we got, I think, finally we got a line or two from um, the the uh, the woman who was injured on the Shenzhou and has the cybernetic implants. And Even that, then, that, she, she didn't have a line. She's like a right. featured extra. Well, and I, but I think she had a line in this episode uh, during the simulation that they were running. Right. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, Stamets. And we've learned a bit about Stamets, uh, but, you know, that was very convenient to the plot to learn about and Let's talk about that simulation yeah. scene really quick, because I loved it. And cool, I love yeah. how they do so bad that, you know, Saru and company are like, I'm sorry, Captain, we will do better. And he's like, well, you can't do any worse. I'm like, <laughs> and for, <laughs> yeah. for some reason, as, you know, I work with a lot of military-minded people and, you know, government organization where we have that strict hierarchy of command. I know people who do exactly like that. Like they incident, they accidentally, excuse me, shame their crew at the same time of trying to build them up. And I get, I get that when I listen to him do it. And he, and Jason Isaac just pulled off like it was just like one take. He just turned around and said, "Well, I can't do any worse," and he just walked off. And I'm like, I, I actually get that, and I like, I kind of enjoyed it because his crew up until now is not a warship crew. They're scientists no. trying to learn how to become better at warfare and. Lorca's obviously seen some stuff. We talked about that last week. Um, so he's trying to impart that on the rest of his crew that, look, we're at war and this is not going to be easy. Well, the only character that really was like on the same side as him, so to speak, was Landry. And they've killed her off. Yeah. Which I am surprised. I'm yeah. actually surprised they killed her off. 
I'm glad they did. She she was irredeemably like she was a red shirt. Well, <laughs> she's just like aw. open the cage with the monster. I'm gonna point a gun at it. And it's like oh you're you're dead. <laughs> you, you do kind of if you survive this, they're not doing their job. <laughs> I do laugh at that. How when you know Burnham gives you that scornful look and she's like, are you what? Oh, I'm just gonna grab this one random phaser off the wall. I'm sure it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's like oh we finally you know captured the xenomorph from aliens. Let's let's let it out. And just shoot it in the head and see what that does. It's like, were you not there last episode? <laughs> Did you not see that it tore slashes in the hole? I don't know. That was mm-hmm. such a stupid... It's just like, is, is she brain dead for her to do that? That's so unreasonable. I'm not... I wasn't a huge fan of her character. I, I, but I thought that she was necessary because she was the only person on the crew that really believed in what Isaacs was doing. Yeah. Well, Lorca, of course, was doing. Um, And without her, now it's this crazed kind of Captain Ahab with a bunch of scientists on board. Yeah, I like that um, when he was complaining to Michael, he said, these are all science officers and I need soldiers. And and Michael's pretty much the only one that kind of bridges that gap between the two. A little bit. I mean, but she hasn't really seen war either. Giorgio had. True. Yeah. You know, Giorgio had thought had fought through war. She was a veteran, um, and Michael Burnham's really a scientist first and foremost herself. Yeah, with the Vulcan training at her mind, she's scientist first, warrior second. And mm-hmm. so we'll see where they go with this. Um, I'll admit I, I like Landry, but I'm biased because I like the actress so much. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, um, let's see. What else do we have to cover on this particular episode? Um, we could talk about the actual military tactics of how they they defended Corvin too, which was it just seemed like they teleported there, dropped some canisters that exploded, and then teleported away. Yeah, so I feel like that was designed again, kind of like we were talking about last week for Section 31. No one wants anybody to know that this technology exists. So rather than firing phasers or anything that would leave you know energy residue from a starship... They show up, they drop, I guess, maybe some torpedo tubes and then disappear. So that way there's no trace that a ship was ever there. Which is, I've never seen that tactic used. Like, were, were those just mines or, and, and why didn't they get teleported away? Or is there a, I don't know. It seemed like a non-standard weapon usage in the Star Trek canon. I mean, it's definitely non-standard. Uh, as far as what they were, I mean, at this point, I, I, all I can say is they were probably torpedoes that they had just maybe beamed into space directly below themselves or something like that. Um, it's a weird tactic, but it was very similar to the tactic that they were using during the simulation, where they're not firing phasers. We, you know, we don't even necessarily know that they have phasers. I guess um, we've only seen torpedoes that blew up the Glen. And so we don't really know what their armament is. Maybe yeah. there's something weird about the spore drive where they can't use phasers. Hmm. But it was an interesting tactic. And they, they even went so far as to show some of the, the miners on the planet saying that like they don't know, like nobody was there. Who did it? It's a miracle kind of thing. Which I think yeah. is a real big support for something. You know, Section 31 is a real possibility even at this point. Yeah, I think uh, Lorca has uh, kind of a Batman personality, where he <laughs> wants to use like science and stealth to to win the day mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. justice. 
And you know what the interesting is? Yeah. We've been talking for a little while, but the Klingon plot, that's the B plot Jeremy mentioned, it was... It, it doesn't stand out much in the episode. And I, I kind of get what they're doing. They're putting, you know, Vol in a terrible situation to show, I don't know, like his brains or intelligence or his devotion or dedication, whatever you want to say, to finding a solution. But realistically, the solution he's in is I'm wondering if, you know, what if Starfleet does go back to get the Shenzhou and, hold, oh, there's two Klingons on board. Now what do we do? I, <laughs> well, I mean, shoot them. They're... Uh, Lorel mentioned that they have a raptor nearby that she snuck off the ship. Um, and so I imagine they're going to be leaving the Shenzhou fairly quickly after we saw them last. Um, there's some people that believe that Voke is going to, it has some connection to the, uh, the albino from the Deep Space Nine episode. Um, and maybe he does, I don't know. But at this point, I'm not really sure what what the goal here is. It sounds like he's going to try and unite the houses. Um, but even Cole doesn't really think that makes a whole lot of sense after the war is over. And now Cole has his entire crew. I'm not sure what, you know, monks or whatever Lorel was referring to. Uh, but I'm guessing we're going to see a part of the Klingon empire or culture, at least that we've never seen before. Right. She said he was, she was going to bring him to the matriarchs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's I just the the A story had such a defined arc, beginning, middle, and end, and this feels like it's just an ongoing piece of of a much longer narrative arc that didn't didn't have a clean wrap up or even really a clean beginning. It just it it felt like a straight line where the A plot felt like an arc, and I don't know. It, that's that's why it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It just didn't feel like a part of the same show. It's definitely. I mean, for me, it was very familiar to Game of Thrones style of, of TV, where you have some stuff that happens that is small, to the point, and not game-changing. And I think that's what the, the Klingon plot was in this particular episode. I would bet good money that they're going to do something similar on the flip side, where the Klingons have the main A plot, and very little will happen on the Federation side. So that doesn't really bother me a, a whole lot. Uh, I think it's really interesting how do you guys feel, though, about all of the subtitles, since the Klingons really only speak Klingon? Uh, I don't know. It's You get used to it after a little while. It can be a little distracting, though, because they have to, from a graphic design standpoint, they they use white with no outline, no drop shadow text, and they have to frame it in a certain way where that has the appropriate context to be legible, and sometimes they don't succeed on that, and then you kind of have to reread it real quick, and I don't know. It's it's a little bit of a handicap that I feel isn't really adding that much. I enjoyed it, actually, um, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of the old-school kind of World War II movies where the Germans always have subtitles, so the Japanese characters always have subtitles. And so I'm biased. I, I enjoy that they're trying to stay in character as much as they can with Klingon versus sometimes what they did in Next Gen and Deep Space Nine was use Klingon, then no, don't use Klingon, then use Klingon, then use translator, then not. Um, yeah, that never made sense in, in the actual technologicals because as soon as they would be yelling something in Klingon, translators should know to translate it. It's not like they were saying something that was untranslatable. They were just saying, like, let's go to war or... Today is a good day to die. This is a good moment to remember that in Star Trek VI Undiscovered Country, uh, Commander Uhura cannot speak Klingon. Because they have have all the Klingon dictionary books when they're trying to 
get past the Klingon defense line. And they're all studying like 10 yeah. or 12 different Klingon books going, uh, we got to use actual Klingon because the translator will be uh, recognized. That is a really good point. Uh, because, you know, in the Abra- in the Kelvin timeline, you know, she can speak all the, the Ro- Vulcan and Romulan dialects, uh, which I would imagine would be fairly difficult. Um, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because I, it always bothered me that in Star Trek, aliens speak something other than English whenever it's convenient. Um, you know, where they would go back and forth and you never knew, you know, what was going on. And there were some throwaway lines about how, you know, some Klingons speak English, but you know, what, what was it like only the top of the line models speak English or something like that? Um, you know, but even in Star Trek three, right? Christopher Lloyd's character, he, he speaks English. His whole crew seems to speak English. Um, but they also, you know, Kirk has to say, beam me up in Klingon. <laughs> um, so here I feel like they're, they're making a, a real effort to say when the Klingons are together, they speak Klingon. And when they speak to the Federation, then they speak English. Well, except in the very first scene of the show where they use the line in English, we come in peace as, as the big battle cry. Right. But I mean, that's because it's, it's something specific. Yeah. That someone speaking English said, right. It's just a reference. Um, which is fine. It's just like, you know, if you, they were speaking Klingon and had to say a proper noun. Um, so I, I think it, it makes sense, but at the same time, I get that people don't want to necessarily read subtitles for an entire episode, which is a possibility here. Um, but I do like that it's more consistent. Yeah, I agree with that. It's consistent, but it's also, I mean, it also breaks, I mean, and again, that's, that's a nitpicky thing, but it breaks with everything Trek has done up until this point, because other times we see Klingon high councils, and if we hear Klingon, it's because we're not supposed to know what they're saying. And it, it gets translated, or it gets relayed through war for Picard or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just, it feels like they're they're trying to be more artistic in a place where they don't really need to be. Well, that, that's interesting, because it's another one of the small things that I, I think the show's doing well, of just trying to keep the Klingons introduced, keep them using their language. Like when Burnham brings in Saru to talk to meet the tardigrade, she's like, hey, I noticed your uh, threat ganglia aren't activated. And she's like, Our, I thought you guys were really good at de- detecting threats. Maybe this thing must not be a threat. And that's when she lowers the shield and starts feeding it. Um, I like that they're doing small stuff like that. Because, again, it's, I always make that joke every episode. It's easy for Star Trek to gloss over some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, part of it is... It's easy to forget that all of Star Trek up until now, all 726 episodes and 13 films, had inconsistencies. And it's impossible to fit every inconsistency. So I feel like here they're just trying to set a standard for Trek moving forward. And that's really the best that we can ask of them as long as it's as consistent as they can be. But isn't this what we're talking about an inconsistency that is pretty much needless. No, cause I think it makes sense that the Klingons would speak Klingon to each other and we would only hear English when they're speaking to us. You know, right. I, I think that that's just realistic. And I think that's what they're going for is they're trying to go for how would this really happen? You know, cause we don't have the same, like by TNG, the, the translator is built into the comm badge um, they mention that a little bit more on Deep Space Nine and Voyager than they do TNG, but but it is. In Enterprise, Hoshi has to do it all herself. 
Um, and by the original series, it's kind of whatever is convenient for the episode. Um, so I feel like here they're trying to really show that um, the Klingons speak a totally separate language from the Federation. I suppose. I, I, my, my biggest gripe with, with the Klingon B-plot is that they're building this emotional narrative for the bad guys and not really doing the same service to the good guys. Like, we don't know the bridge crew. Oh, speaking of bridge crew, before before I forget about it again, uh, there's a new robot-headed character on the bridge crew yep. that looks exactly like rebuilt Frieza, if, if you guys are familiar with oh. Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, she had like yeah. light blue skin, and her her face was all patched together. She always kind of. I want to know that. She character. struck me as almost kind of like a Nebula from Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, a little exactly. bit. Yeah, very much so. Um, no, I, I think some of that though, as far as like tone and, and kind of giving a, a personal story to the Klingons over the Federation, has to do with we already know the Federation more, right? Because it's just it's us; they're humans, um, and we can make assumptions about those characters. Whereas with the Klingons, they're trying to build an entire mythos uh, around these Klingons, a different kind of Klingon than we're used to seeing, um, and, sh- and kind of show both sides of the war, which is not an easy task. And keep in mind, we're still only four episodes in, so they- they- we might see some balance down the road. True. I don't know. So, f- so far, I just feel like we're-, we're seeing the motivations of both sides. But the motivations of one side is we're trying to defend ourselves against Klingons, and the Klingons' motivation is we're trying to kill people so that we can do a religious fanatic prophecy fulfillment, which it's it's hard to have any kind of empathy for what they're trying to accomplish because it is just – like normally you would if, – if there's a monster alien race that's coming at you and that's their thing, you don't see them as – protagonist you don't see them as the stars of a b story you see them when they attack you and you blow them up because they are bad guys and i just i don't really get any kind of sense that uh laurel and voke are anything but bad guys well i mean they 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 are bad guys right but i think the the main focus of the klingons for the for their side of things is that they're worried about being lost in the federation they're worried about losing their what makes them unique losing their culture uh be, having to assimilate which is something that i think a lot of people who uh live in the united states who um, are minority groups worry that they might lose their culture and their background um, the klingons have decided to go to war over it and that's a very interesting point because i think that um that is a real concern. The Federation is this force that goes through the galaxy and gobbles up planets and you have to fill into their rules. There's laws, there's regulations that you have to follow. Um, and we've always had to argue in the Federation about what is acceptable behavior and what's not acceptable behavior within the Federation. True. I mean, from that perspective, but the the cultural traditions of like savagery and blowing each other up and stuff seem to be what they're trying to preserve. And it's like, I mean, I, I get that you feel beleaguered and, and I get that you're trying to be, uh, you know, have your rough edges sanded off by the, the great boring space Federation that tries to make everything boring space Federation. But it's like, uh, okay. Uh, but at the end of the day, your goals are to be a big marauding monster race. And it's like, I find it hard to care about well, your needs. 
That's fair. I mean, you don't have to, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, but uh, I don't think it's – the idea isn't so much that the Klingons want war. It's that the Klingons want to remain Klingon, right, is the idea. And there are some groups that want to remain a certain way because uh, of, of a real cultural heritage. And there's other groups that want to stay a particular way because they have very, you know, aggressive, violent – beliefs uh which may be fairly topical um <laughs> to not get get too political on things yeah um so we are kind of reaching our our time here uh do you guys have anything else you want to add about the episode uh the only other thing i was going to bring up was the fact that they have stopped going to code black that they introduced in episode three i thought that was a, a cool cool thing that like whenever they would do the Mycium network, the the shroom jump, that the the water droplets would start getting suspended, and and they, they would go to code black, and it would be a thing, but that uh, it didn't happen this time. They just kind of it it looked like a stationary warp jump. Hmm. I, I missed that. I thought they did go to code black at one point. Um, oh, did so they? I was did reading they say something that? about. Yeah, I thought so because I was reading something there. Uh, one of huh. the. Uh, computer stations actually had like a black alert symbol on it and stuff like that. Oh. So I, I thought they did, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm, I just saw the symbol. I might've missed it too. I don't know. Uh, Greg, anything uh, on your end? I'm just, I'm really enjoying the fact that with the introduction, the, excuse me, the introduction of the, the tardigrade slash water bear slash king or queen of the spore peoples. Um, we're getting a lot more of that Star Trek feel again every more, a little bit more in every episode where Burnham is looking at this creature and seeing it kind of with Stamus, seeing it kind of suffer when they're using it to, to jump. And then she's feeding it again at the, at the end of the episode and you can see the internal conflict in her, which I think Star Trek, the Roddenberry idea of Star Trek has always been about some internal conflict among the people about trying to do good and while you're doing good also realizing, well, wait a second, we're doing well, but what are the results of our actions? And I, and I think there's so much they could do with that. And even in a sense where, I don't know if the war continues and they try to outlaw this technology, they could do, maybe they have one of the few future episodes where they stop using it because it hurt in the tardigrade. And all of a sudden the Klingons launch a massive counterattack that just, takes three or four sectors like in deep space nine when the, the dominion took beta z and everybody's like holy cow you know they, they mm-hmm. could do something like that and have that star trek feel where the federation's looking at itself going what do we do now do we go back to using it well we just outlawed it so i'm, I'm enjoying right. what they're doing i'm enjoying we're starting to get more of the characters i'm i'm with jeremy i want to see more interaction and emotional growth and development between the uh the discovery crew so that mm-hmm. that's what my hope is for the re- for the next couple episodes. That's fair. I, I, I totally get that. Um, I'm pretty much with you there. Uh, one thing I, w- I want to point out is we, we're, we're joking around about the uh, the length of the title, but uh, according to Memory Alpha, it is only the the second longest episode title in all of Star Trek. Uh, a TOS episode called "For the World Is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky" is the uh, the leading longest episode title in all of star trek so um nice try guys <laughs> <laughs> and that should have been the title of the uh, dyson sphere episode with uh, scotty on next generation uh i like it i like it very nice 
Um, all right. Well, a uh, couple of things to, to help kind of wrap us up here. We have uh, our contest winner to announce, and we got our first review on iTunes. So I want to thank Avenger ZS for the five-star review. Uh, they said, I'm glad Trek has returned to television, and I'm enjoying your discussion about the episodes. Keep it up, guys. So thank you, Avenger ZS, for that. Uh, please, if you're, if you're listening, go to iTunes. Drop us a review. Red Shirts and Runabouts. We're part of the Heroes Podcast Network. Uh, you can go to heroespodcast.com to, to find more of our links. Um, this past week, we ran a contest where we were giving away a copy of Outside In Makes It So, which is a Star Trek essay book about the next generation from ATB Publishing. That uh, Yours truly, uh, I was one of 174 authors to contribute essays uh, covering all the uh, the episodes and the TNG films. So we were going to give away a copy, and we did that on Facebook with a contest. And uh, I uh, picked our winner today. Our winner is Laura Benfer, who... Uh, so yes, congratulations, Laura. Uh, she noted that uh, Measure of a Man is her favorite Next Generation episode. Uh, she uh, says it's one of the best episodes. Just the idea of what really makes someone human is such an interesting idea. And, uh, that, that is a really great, uh, choice. I think it's definitely one of my favorite episodes. Um, really strong data and Picard and Riker episode is a really tough one. If you've never seen it, uh, measure of a man. So, uh, Laura, if you are out there listening, uh, please, uh, hit us up. We will, uh, get you, uh, get an address and get a copy of the book mailed to you as soon as possible. Uh, thank you to everybody who entered uh, the contest. I'm sure we'll do something in the future. All right. Well, that's going to be it for us. Uh, Jeremy, Greg, if people want to reach out to you and talk Trek, how can they find you guys? Uh, I am Zen Munkin on Twitter. And I am the underscore Bittersteel at Twitter. And also the underscore Bittersteel at Yahoo.com is my email address. Awesome. And I am the Star Trek dude on Twitter and Facebook. If you'd like to contact the show directly, you can do that at redshirts at heroespodcast.com or at heroespodcasts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Uh, join us next week. We'll be talking about episode five of Star Trek Discovery. Thanks for tuning in. Live long and prosper. Have a nice evening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.